Turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be considering the second half of verse 18 through 26 this evening. So Philippians chapter 1, the second half of verse 18 through 26. As you recall last week, Paul shared with us his mindset on suffering. And in so doing, he was warning us to imitate his example. And this evening, Paul is continuing uh, along the same line of thought as he shares his mindset on death, arguably the greatest suffering of all. And again, he's wanting us to imitate his example. Again, Philippians chapter 1, second half of verse 18 through uh, 26. Please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Apostle Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. A subject that has captured the thought of many pastors and theologians throughout the history of the church has been death, and more particularly, how to die well. In fact, it was once said that the role of the pastor was to prepare his congregants for death. Because this was such a prominent subject in, in ages past, it, this, this, this subject took on a more formal title, the Ars Moriende. So the Latin title for the art of dying or the art of dying well. And one notion that was common to all of the reflections on, on this subject was that the art of dying well begins in the present. It must be learned throughout one's life. This isn't something that's merely reserved for the deathbed. And one reason why uh, this subject may have been so, or captured the thought of a, of pastors and theologians uh, in ages past, our forefathers in the faith, is because death probably seemed a bit more imminent to them than it does for us today, living in, in these modern times. Whatever one thinks of our current events and the severity of, of the virus that's going on, I think we all can agree that it's reminded us of the reality of death, and that we do not hold the powers of life and death. Well, as you may know, here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison. And he's awaiting a trial 
that might very easily end up in execution. So for Paul, death is quite imminent. So what he's doing for us is sharing his mindset on this topic of death. He's giving us his own ars moriende, as it were, his own reflection on the art of dying. And Paul's point, similar to those who would come after him, is that in order to die well, one needs to prepare well. And preparation begins throughout one's life. So what is Paul's mindset as he reflects on this this topic of death? You'll see right away in verse 18, Paul has an attitude of joy. Paul rejoices in the face of death. You may wonder, how do those two things go together? Joy and death, they seem quite opposite. (laughs) It's true. Death in itself is not a reason to rejoice. It's a result of the curse, a result of sin in this world. So where does Paul's joy come from? Well, Paul's joy in the face of death comes from the cultivation of three virtues, faith, hope, and love. It's the main idea I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this evening, that Paul's joy in the face of death comes from the cultivation of of three virtues, faith, hope, and love. It's these three virtues that Paul wants us to be cultivating throughout our life so that we, like him, may be able to rejoice when we're on the doorstep of death. So this evening, I would like us to consider... Uh, Three main points. Paul's faith in a secure salvation. Paul's hope of heaven. And Paul's love for Christ. So Paul's hope, or Paul's faith in a secure salvation. Paul's hope of heaven. And Paul's love for Christ. So first we see that Paul's faith in a secure salvation. So if you look with me in your Bibles again, the second half of verse 18 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, is Paul expressing confidence that he will be delivered from his current circumstances? A Roman prison? Or is he referring to a greater deliverance? Now, on first reading, it may seem as if he's referring to his current circumstances, being delivered from this Roman prison that he's currently residing in. However, I think Paul has in mind a greater deliverance, an eternal deliverance, namely eternal salvation before God. Now, why do I think this? Well, Paul's words here are almost identical to a phrase that Job uses in Job 13. In Job 13, Job is arguing his case before God and he says that his afflictions will work out for his salvation. What salvation is Job referring to there? What Job is referring to is eternal salvation before God. That's his hope. And Paul likely here in Philippians 1 is putting himself in the very shoes of Job. Further, notice how Paul is is describing absolute confidence in his deliverance. He knows that he will be delivered. 
Now, if he's referring merely to his current circumstances, it would seem a bit odd because Paul doesn't know how his trial is going to go. He is preparing for the possibility of execution. So it wouldn't make much sense if he's referring uh, merely to his release from prison. Lastly, this word for deliverance is actually the ordinary word for salvation. And Paul uses this very same word uh, a couple other times in this book to refer to salvation before God. So uh, so as we see, Paul is, is expressing confidence and faith in his salvation before God. Now, Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, and especially in the beginning of of chapter 3, how he is saved. But suffice to say, Paul is trusting Christ alone for this deliverance, for this salvation, before God's judgment. Therefore, the first thing that we need to have in order to rejoice on the doorstep of death is faith. Faith in Christ alone. For our salvation. Boys and girls, you probably know the story of Noah and the ark that God commanded Noah in, in the beginning of Genesis to build this ark and commanded both he and his family to enter this ark in order to be saved from the floodwaters. Well, Christ is kind of like that ark for Noah. And faith is like the entrance ramp onto that ark. When we have faith, we enter into the ark of Christ. And we're not just saved from earthly floodwaters. We're saved from a much greater judgment, the very judgment of God. So as you can see, faith is really, really important. So I'd like us now to observe a few things about Paul's faith in this deliverance, or faith in Christ for this deliverance. We see here that Paul has a persevering faith. God is a God who uses means to accomplish his purposes. And the means that God uses to to persevere us, cause us to persevere in faith, are the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the church. Uh, You see this in verse 19. Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will work out for my deliverance. The Holy Spirit causes us to persevere. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the down payment, the guarantor of our salvation. Everyone who possesses the Holy Spirit will never be lost. The Holy Spirit also assures us in our faith. Paul says that the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is a common way that the Spirit is described throughout the New Testament. The Spirit of Jesus Christ. This tells us that one of the roles of the Spirit is to illuminate Christ. To shine its light, as it were, upon upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The late uh, Christian theologian J.I. Packer, who actually just passed away a couple weeks ago, he he had an illustration to help uh, describe this reality of the Spirit's role to illuminate Christ. And he used the example of floodlights or stadium lights. So if you've ever been to a, a sports game, a, maybe a Mariners game or a Seahawks game at night, and you see the stadium lights. And when the stadium lights are working properly, you don't notice them because their role is not to draw attention to themselves, but to illuminate the field or the court. It's only when they're not working that you notice them. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit's job is not necessarily a point uh, to himself, but rather to shine his light upon Christ 
Thus the Holy Spirit assures us as he directs the eyes of our faith upon Christ, reminds us of Christ's promises and the work that he's done on our behalf. Paul also says that the prayers of the Philippians are a means of, of perseverance. You know, Paul's mind, persevering in faith is a community project. It's not something that's supposed to be done individually. Belonging to, to a community of believers, a local church, a church in which uh, people are praying for one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. This is one of the means that the Lord has ordained to cause us to persevere in this faith and this salvation that's been accomplished for us. Well, Paul's not only demonstrating a persevering faith, but he's also demonstrating a God-fearing faith. Notice how Paul here fears God more than he fears Caesar or man or anybody around him. Paul is more concerned over God's verdict of him in Christ than Caesar's verdict. He's shaped and influenced more by what God says about him than the judgments of those around him. If you look with your Bibles at verse 20, Paul now in verse 20 is referring to his upcoming trial. And he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now and always Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul expects that he will be unashamed that he will be courageous, that he will honor Christ no matter what the outcome of his upcoming trial is. And why? Well, it's because he's been so shaped by God's verdict. He's so secure in this deliverance, the salvation that he has before God that man's opinion has really uh, faded to the background. Come almost hear Paul's words in Romans 8. As Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the one who justifies, who can condemn? And so oftentimes we get this mixed around, don't we? We care more about the judgments and opinions of those around us. And God's opinion of us in Christ fades to the background. Well, Paul is calling us here to to also have a God-fearing faith, a faith in which God's opinion of us looms large. The judgments and opinion of man fades away. Well, Paul indeed has, has faith in a secure salvation, but this faith in a secure salvation gives forth to the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. In verses 21 through 26, Paul is engaging in this this inner dialogue with himself as he's seeking to determine what he desires more, life or death. He's wrestling through the implications of of both of these options because both of these options are, are a possibility. And as he muses over the possibility of death, he's able to rejoice because of the hope of one day being fully united with Christ as Savior. If you look with me at the second half of verse 21, Paul says, to die is gain. When he thinks of death, he thinks of gain. You may wonder, well, why, Paul? Well, he, he explains this for us in verse 23. 
As he says, my desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, Paul is not being suicidal. He's not devaluing life. Boys and girls, it's sort of like if you have a big vacation coming up at the end of summer that you're very, very excited for. You think about it every day, each day, each passing day, the anticipation builds. And just because you're excited for that vacation doesn't mean that you don't like ordinary life at home in the summertime. It's just that you're very excited about vacation. Well, Paul recognizes that life with Jesus after death is going to be better than he can ever, or is better than ever than he could have ever imagined. And he can't wait to get there. And Paul's hope that he's expressing here is certain. It's fixed. It's sure. It's a hope that this world really has no idea of. This, this world doesn't have certain and sure and fixed hope. Only Christians have a hope that is certain, that is sure. As a result, this hope should shape us in the present. Our destination should influence our lives in the here and now. Now, Paul is able to rejoice in the face of death because of the realization of this hope, this hope of one day being fully united to Christ. Oftentimes, we, we can get so caught up in our lives here on earth that we forget that we're merely pilgrims passing through. We haven't reached our homeland yet. We can be like ambassadors who forget our home country. Paul's wanting us to continue to cultivate this hope, to meditate, think, talk more about this hope, this blessed hope that is ours in Christ. Well, one way that we can cultivate this hope that we have together as a church is by partaking of the Lord's Supper, which we'll be doing here uh, later on in this service. Because it's the supper that reminds us of our hope. The supper is a foretaste of this hope that Paul is speaking of. You know, in the Lord's Supper, we, we experience union and communion with Christ, the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Reverend Vanderpool, as he will be administering the supper this evening, he will, he will exhort us to lift our hearts to heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that because the Spirit is at present in our lives, there's a sense in which we are already right now raised with Christ in the heavenly places. The supper is a time in which we are, we are strengthening this union that we have with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we all recognize that this age is still an age of tension. We have this in, in a sense, but it's not yet fully realized. We are united to Christ, but we are united to Christ as the engaged bride and not the married wife. This union has not yet been consummated. You know, the supper we are about to partake of is sort of like the rehearsal dinner of a wedding. It's a moment of celebration, but more than anything, it's a moment of great expectation of hope, of what is yet to come. So as we partake of these elements, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But union with Christ in heaven that Paul is speaking of here, and that marriage supper of the land that we're looking forward to on the last day, that's that wedding dinner. When we will no longer be the engaged bride, but the married wife. So the supper, brothers and sisters, is a foretaste, a foretaste of this hope that is ours right now. Well, Paul not only expresses a confident hope 
a confident faith, a sure hope, but he also displays a love, a love for Christ, a love for Christ. And Paul's love for Christ here in in this passage looks like faithfulness to the calling that Christ has given to him. For as long as the Lord allows him to remain on this earth. As I've mentioned, verses 21 through 26, Paul is going through this dialogue as he's debating within himself uh, whether he desires to live or to die and the implications of both of them. And in verse 21, Paul thinks of life, remaining life in the flesh. And he says Christ. That's how he summarizes his life, Christ. He further explains this in verse 22 as he says, to remain in the flesh means more fruitful labor for me. Now, what was Paul's calling? Well, Paul's calling was to be a minister to the Gentiles, to be uh, an instrument of God, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he saw his remaining life on earth as an opportunity to continue to do that. There's great value in in this life for Christ. And if you look uh, with me at verses 24 through 26, Paul expresses his desire to actually remain alive so he can continue to minister to the Philippians. Now it's important to note that, that Paul here is expressing his desire. First reading, it seems almost as if Paul has been given some special revelation that he actually knows that he's going to remain alive and the trial is going to work out in his favor. But Paul's likely here just expressing his desire, what he's, wanting, what he's praying for, what he's asking God uh, to do. But notice Paul's love for Christ looks like selflessness towards others. He says he wants to remain in the flesh for the sake of the Philippians, for their own progress and joy in the faith. Well, what does this mean for us? Are we all called to be pastors? Are we all called to be missionaries, sell everything, and move countries away? Well, no. As, as you may recall, a few weeks ago, we considered for a few moments what it means to be a servant of Christ. And we went to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is going through all these various callings of life. Marriage, parenthood, childhood, uh, even our occupations. But Paul doesn't seem to be trying to be exhaustive in Colossians 3 as he summarizes uh, that passage by saying, and whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you serve the Lord Christ. So every calling that you have is a calling from Christ, whether it be in your family, whether it be in your job, school, it's a calling from Christ. These are no less callings than being a pastor or a missionary. And you love Christ by serving faithfully within these callings. You love Christ by being selfless within these callings. So each day that the Lord gives us on this earth is proof that he's still using us to serve and bless our neighbor. We're called to cultivate. Cultivate this love for Christ, which looks like love for those around us in the different spheres of life that the Lord has placed us in. As we begin to wrap things up here, I'd like to step back for a moment and and make a a brief comment on the context of of chapter 1. Next week, we'll be concluding chapter 1. And as I've mentioned 
over the last few weeks, it is a bit striking how much Paul goes into the, the, the personal circumstances that he's, he's going through right now in prison. And this is especially so in our passage tonight. Paul's not just talking about being in prison. He's going through the inner wrestlings of his soul. Sometimes you wonder, why are you doing this? It almost seems like him, he's copying and pasting a part of his personal diary and inserting it in, into this book. Well, next week, Paul will now turn the focus onto the Philippians. He'll say, you are also called to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. You also are called to suffer. There are two things granted to the Christian, faith and suffering. So the reason behind our passage this evening and last week's passage is Paul is seeking to demonstrate from his own life what it looks like to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. What it looks like to suffer well. You know, boys and girls, I'm sure you've all had the experience of, of not being able to figure out a math problem. Just being stumped. So you go up to your teacher, your mom, or your dad, and you, you want help. Now, if your teacher, your mom, and dad just gives you the answer, that might be, that might be nice in the short run, but come exam time, it's not going to help you very much. Because you need your teacher to show his or, her, his or her work so that you know how to arrive at the right answer. Well, Paul, like a master teacher, is not just wanting to give us the answer. He's not just wanting to command us, live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's wanting to show his work so that we all know how to arrive at the right answer, the right conclusion. How we all know how to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And one aspect of this work that he's showing and demonstrating uh, through his own life to the Philippians is his mindset of joy in the face of death. His mindset of joy in the face of death. As we've just considered, it it was Paul's cultivation of these three virtues, faith and hope and love, that led him to be able to rejoice as he approached the very doorstep of death. And the way we can prepare for death, a time in a, that we do not know, but we prepare the same way Paul prepared, by cultivating these virtues. A confident faith, a sure hope, and a zealous love. Let us pray. O Lord, may you continue the work that you've begun in each of our hearts as we look forward to the day in which we will no longer be your engaged bride, but your married wife. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.